It's a pleasure to be with you today. I uh, have the honor and pleasure of bringing you the message. Um, one of my favorite parables in which Jesus gives in all the gospel accounts is, is the one in which we will look at this morning. It is a parable that you're more than likely familiar with, the parable of what is commonly called the, the prodigal son. And today I would like for us to, to look at this parable of Jesus is found only in the gospel account of, of Luke. And uh, like I said, this is probably one of my uh, favorite parables and even more so uh, studying it. Uh, there's so much that we can, we can glean from it. And, and, and though it is long, and I'm sure with this being a, a video recording, you, your gaze has already gone down to the time bar at the bottom and look to the right to see how long this sermon is, but um, I promise you it, it is worth it. There's so much that we can learn, so much that we can uh, glean from this parable of our Lord's. Um, so let us, uh, let us read the text here, and if you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and we will be looking at verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32. Um, I'll read the text and then pray. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided up his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and entreated him, but he answered his father and said, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the, you have killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let us pray. 
Father God, we humbly come before you. We thank you for this opportunity. I thank you, O Lord, for this undeserved opportunity and privilege it is to um, proclaim your word. And God, you know my struggles with this text. You know uh, that, Lord, I, I am... There's so much here. There's so much here, but I pray right now that uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak through me, that your truth would be proclaimed faithfully and purely for the edification of your people, for the building up of your people, for the furthering of Christ and his kingdom here on earth, for the exaltation of Christ. And to you be all the glory and praise. Speak to us all now. We ask and pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, to give us a, a little bit of context here, uh, which is uh, of this parable, like I said, which is only found in, in Luke's account, uh, throughout Luke's gospel, he has uh, been portraying Jesus as one who associates with the lowly of society. Um, the hated tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the Roman centurions, the diseased, uh, all those that the, the religious leaders of his time deemed to be sinners. At the beginning of this chapter, read of the grumblings of, of the scribes and Pharisees that, uh, uh, toward Jesus' welcoming of such people. And it is in this, the context is, in which Jesus gives three parables. Three parables that, that highlight the finding of that which has been lost and the joy that comes with finding it. The first parable is that of a lost sheep. The second is that of a lost coin. And the third, which we're in right now, is the lost son. But as we examine this text, I want us to keep in mind to whom this parable is addressed. It is to the grumbling scribes and Pharisees in which this parable is addressed too. So let us begin, and we'll start in verse 11 here. Looking at verse 11 and 12, he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Here I want to see, we're going to be looking at a lot of R's. So here I want to see the request. The request of the youngest son. Um, first of all, what's, what's the deal with the younger siblings? It always seems like uh, it is the younger siblings that seem to be more um, rambunctious or, or adventurous. Uh, anyway, but uh, here we see the youngest son has a, has a shocking request of his father in the beginning of this parable. He goes to his father and, and, and requests his inheritance. Now, in ancient times... Uh, you could expect an inheritance when your, when your father died. Um, the firstborn would receive a double inheritance. So in this case, with him having two sons, the eldest would receive two-thirds and, and the youngest one-third of the uh, father's estate. And that was pretty much in this time, your wealth was your land or, or maybe crops or livestock, but for the most part, your land and your estate was your wealth. Um, now, the father would have to, in this case, the father could sell 
the rights to the land to his children or, or give the rights to the land to his children in which they could sell to someone. Um, but that buyer would not be able to uh, attain the property until the father died. Um, for the father here, uh, we don't know the exact terms of the settlement, and that's not the point. It's a parable, so I don't want us to get too bogged down with, with the uh, this minute details. But this request is unusual because the son wants the father to sell the land and give him the proceeds or, or the value of the land now. He wants his inheritance now. And on top of this being an unusual request, it is, it is a disrespectful request. Um, there's a huge sense of entitlement here from the youngest son. And such disrespect, I mean, imagine, if you would, your child coming to you and saying, um, Mom, Dad, according to your will, if you were to die right now, what would I get? What would I receive? And you might say, you would receive the, half the value of the house and half of our, our savings and, and half the value of, of all that we possess, um, you know, all that we possess. And that child says, wow, that's, that seems really good. Can, do I have to wait till you die? Can you just give it to me now? Such kind of a disrespectful, you know, most of us would have a, be very taken back by, by such a request. And, and, and such was a, at this time. Uh, it was a disrespectful request of the son. He doesn't want to wait till his father dies. He wants his inheritance. He wants his money now. And, and it wasn't like the, the father, just like today, if, if your child requested this of you, you know, you'd have to sell your home if you were to grant this request. You would have to sell your home or, or, or take a loan out for the value of the home in order to give them to him. It's not like the father had this money staged off to the side that says, do not open until dead. Um, uh, it wasn't like he could just hand them. He'd have to take a hit right then and there. He'd have to somehow he'd sell this property, sell his land, and, and, and give the proceeds to the son. There was a, a financial blow to the father. This was uh, unheard of to a first-century Palestinian. And, and like I said, it was, it was, we'd be insulted today. But what is more unusual than the request is the reaction of the father. He, he does what he, his, his son requests. He, he gives to him the inheritance. Now, this also would have been very unusual to Jesus' hearers at this time. Um, you know, like most of us, we would probably say, you know what, not only are you not getting anything, you're out of the will. Um, you know, and, and the Father had the right to do so. But if this Father is representative of our Heavenly Father, which He is, it's funny is that He, he, he knows exactly what He's going to do. It's not as if the Son comes to Him and says, Father, I have this opportunity, this business opportunity, this investment opportunity. If you give me my inheritance now, I'm going to double it. I'm going to triple it, and I'm going to bring it back, and we're going to have more, okay? He doesn't say any of that. He just simply says, I want my money, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. I don't want to wait till you're dead. And the Father grants the request. And again, in, like I said, if this is representative of our Heavenly Father, he knows exactly what he's going to do. 
he knows that he's going to squander. He knows his son. He knows that he's going to go away. He's going to squander his wealth. Yet he gives it to him anyway. And when I think back of my prayers as a young believer, I am somewhat appalled of some of the things that I requested that were completely and utterly self-centered, selfish prayers. It is scary to me and appalling to me to think, but what is even more scary to think about is what if God had, request, or had granted those requests, answered those prayers. I am so thankful for some of God's unanswered prayers in my life. But sometimes God does grant us and does give us that which we want. He does so sometimes to allow ourselves to pierce ourselves upon our sins. Sometimes God gives us and grants us exactly what we want as judgment. Um, when we read in, in Romans chapter 1 uh, that we read of the corruption and wickedness and evilness of, of man and one of, one of God's final acts of judgment against them is to hand them over to themselves, to hand them over to a debased mind, a mind that can't think right. God says, fine, you want nothing to do with me? This is the life you want? You want your sin? You have it. I'm going to completely back off and you have your way. And sometimes he hands us over to our sins in order to lead, lead us to repentance. Sometimes it is an act of mercy. And we look back at in some of the Old Testament, especially if you look, read through the book of Judges, we'll read of, of God handing Israelite, the Israelites over to their idolatry. And he does so, and they become uh, captive of, of their enemies. And, and, and God allows this to happen so that they would turn and repent and turn back to him, turn from their idolatry. And as you read through Judges, it's just a vicious cycle. It would only take one generation to fall right back into idolatry, and God would hand them over to their sin. They would become captive of another nation. They would repent and turn from their idolatry, turn back to God, and God would redeem them. So sometimes it is an act of, of mercy. I mean, we think of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, when he addresses uh, a, a congregate who is sinning by, by laying with his father's wife, um, you know, hopefully it's his stepmom, and um, not that that's any better, but he's, he, Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, you know, it was Paul saying, hand him over to his sin. Let him pierce himself upon his sin that he may turn and be saved. Now, we already know how this parable ends, Right? We know the outcome already. But what if the father told the son, no, you must remain here. I will not give you the inheritance. Would not the son, the son may have remained under the father's care and rule, but would have done so and, and have an attitude of, of resentment the whole time, longing for the life that his father uh, took from him, longing for the life of sin. Sometimes God will allow us to get pierced by our own sins. Allow us to go our own way that we may see how destructive 
our sinful desires are and how empty they leave us in the end. We see here in verse 13 through 16, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pig that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Here we see the, the recklessness, uh, recklessness of the son. Uh, quickly, we see the, the youngest son's motive. He wanted his freedom to live a life he wanted. He desired the benefits of the father, but not the father himself. He wanted the blessings without the rule. Um, this today is American evangelicalism at its best. You know, we tout one nation under God, yet we live like one nation over God. We say God bless America as long as the blessing does not come with any type of uh, stipulation or, or rule over us. We're okay with God until it interferes with our lifestyle and desires. We want the blessings of God without His Lordship in our lives. We want the benefits of God, but not God Himself. This youngest son travels to a far country, most likely outside of Jewish territory, and there squanders everything he has by means of reckless lifestyle. And to top it off, a severe famine hits. So he has nothing, and to top it off, the, the economy collapses. A severe famine hits, and, and we see the, the, how desperate he becomes in, in verse 15 here. He is forced to feed pigs. Now, we might get a sense of how demeaning this could be. I mean, just feeding pigs is, is not a glamorous job. But for a Jew, this was... Um, utterly demeaning and, and disgraceful job because swine were unclean. So Jews would avoid pigs at all, at all costs. And not only does he work with the pigs, feed the pigs, and in the midst of the pigs, these unclean animals, he longs to eat that which they eat, showing just how much poverty he was in. And what is interesting here is that it says that no one gave him anything. Now, this would be kind of expected if he were in his village. His village would most likely know the disrespect he showed his father and would have nothing to do with him. But he's off in a far country. It is most likely that his reputation and his reckless lifestyle was well known in that community. He was most likely the scourge of that community. His Reckless lifestyle, maybe gambling and drinking and prostitutes was well known in that community and everyone refused to help him. His, him being a scourge in that community was very uh, reminiscent of the majority of those who were around Jesus at the time of him telling this parable. The outcasts and scourge of the community. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. 
Now we'd like for us to recognize the repentance of the son. This youngest son has, has hit rock bottom. He's, hit the, he's at the bottom of the barrel and, and, and so proud we are that sometimes this is what it takes to get us to, to come to our senses. And that's what it means when he says he came to himself. He came to his senses. He is living a desolate filth and poverty and hunger. This life that he thought would bring him happiness and joy only has brought him ruin. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 13, talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And other, and other than the word destructive, I can think of no other word better to describe sin than deceitful. If we knew what sin brought about, the end result of it, we would avoid it at all costs. But it deceives us. It is, it is luring to us and it promised satis- satisfaction, but leaves us desolate and empty as it did this son. He realized that it is his pride that leaves him in this state that he is in. And he longs to be like one of his father's hired servants. He goes from longing to be out from under the rule of his father as a son to longing to be under his father's rule as a servant. And he says to himself, I will go to my father. I will go back. I will turn back to my father and go back to him. You know, some critics may say of this parable that it doesn't really give a sense of, uh, of true repentance, really. And, and, um, and I disagree. I, I think this parable, this right here, gives the, the perfect format of what true saving repentance looks like. He has come to the end of himself. He has recognized his sin against his father and against God. He has humbled himself and and has decided to swallow his pride and has decided to turn away from his lifestyle, turn back to his father. Is this not what true saving repentance looks like? Coming to an end of yourself? And this doesn't mean that you have to be poor. You can see the ruin of your life while living in a mansion, while having much. You can see that the end result spiritually is utter, desolate ruin and destruction. And true repentance is is being convicted of that, coming to the end of yourself and saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not living. I'm not doing it my way anymore. I've recognized my sin and I'm turning from it. I'm humbling myself and swallowing my pride and turning from my former ways and turning back to God. He begins to devise a a plan in order to uh, regain his father's favor. You see, a hired servant was different than maybe a a regular servant or a bond servant at this time. A hired servant had association with some type of trade. So the idea most likely was, I will go back to my father. I will ask him to to make me like one of his hired servants. I will learn a trade and I will earn back that which I have taken. And this fits right in line with Rabbi teaching at this time, rabbinic teaching at this time, which taught that it wasn't enough to say you're sorry, it wasn't enough to be repentful, to, to, um, you, had to, you had to make restitution, you had to make it right. And that's the, the son's plan. I will go and I will earn back my father's favor. I will work hard. I will be like a hired servant and I will, I will make restitution for my wrong. 
Verse 20, he says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still long off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here we will examine the return and reception of the son. The return and reception of the son. The son sets out to return to his father with his head hung low. But while still far away, the father sees him and has compassion on him. This is the same compassion that, that Jesus felt for, for the great crowd in Matthew 9, verse 36, when he says, When he saw the great crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd due to the, the Pharisees heaping upon them man-made laws and, and a religion that they can never attain salvation through. The father here runs out to meet him. Now, this simply would, would go by any of us. We would think nothing of it. But to, to Jew, Jews and, and Jesus' audience at the time, um, this would also be surprising. Running was something that was undignified. It was something that children or young children do. It was not something that men, Jewish men did, especially uh, a patriarch of the family. It was undignified. Yet, that is exactly what the father does. He girds up his robe and, and, and humbles himself and runs out to his son so he can be reconciled unto him. What a perfect example and parallel of what Jesus has done for us. In Philippians 2, 6 through 7, uh, it says, though he, was not, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of man. Just as the father undignified himself and humbled himself by running out to reconcile the son, so Jesus humbles himself, undignifies himself in a sense by, by taking on human flesh, the flesh of his own creation, that he may reconcile sinful man to God. Notice that he does not wait for his son to grovel at his feet. There is not crossed arms or shaking of the finger or any I told you so's. The father simply moved with compassion that his lost son has been found and runs to embrace and kiss him. You know, I, I must admit to you, that I was convicted reading this. You see, there are many churches today that, that teach that it's all about grace, 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 mercy, 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 God's love, love, love. But they leave out sin. They leave out repentance. They leave out God's holiness, His justness, His wrath, and hell. And in all honesty, it is those things that exalt Christ 
and his, what he did on, for us on the cross. It is those things that exalt God's mercy, those things that exalt his grace, his love, his forgiveness. The good news is not good unless you first have the bad. But I must admit that I rally so hard sometimes against that. That sometimes I allow the pendulum to swing too far the other way. Sometimes I focus and, and focus on the holiness of God and his justness and his, and his wrath against sin and hatred of sin and that I don't focus enough sometimes on his love. And Lord, forgive me for that. So much so that sometimes when I sin and I go to God in repentance, sometimes I, I, I get this mental image of God just, you know, with his arms crossed and just sighing and shaking his head in, in disapproval of me. Yet again, here is Cameron repenting and turning from his same sins. Yeah, I forgive you, Cameron. Away with you. And maybe you feel like that as a Christian. You keep messing up and, and maybe you feel like ah, your natural reaction is maybe not to go to God and, and, and repentance, but to kind of be like this son and work out a, a plan of, of how to make it right before asking for forgiveness, to show God that you're serious about uh, not committing the sin again. Maybe like me, sometimes you, you have this image of, of a father kind of shaking his head in disapproval. But that's not the image that our Lord paints of the father here. Here we see of a father of compassion who, who sees his son and who, who runs out to welcome him. A God who, who pursues his sinful creation. And that is, a, that is a picture that the Bible paints for us. When Adam and Eve sin, it is God who calls out to them. It is God who pursues Israel. And it is God, the perfect example, is God who pursues sinful man by sending his son. We, see the, we serve a God who, who pursues us. And just as the, the son has his head hung low, still knowing he's far off from his father's house, reciting what he's going to say in order to gain his father's favor, in order that his father would, would accept him back. He's going to make restitution. He hears the footsteps in the midst of him walking back and looks up and there's the father's arms wide open. Believer, when we come to God, in repentance of our sins. He is not far off shaking his head in disapproval, but right there with arms open, ready to receive you. Receive you, accept you, because on the cross, Christ was condemned. The father here is, is moved and, and, and the son is ready to lay out his, his plan of restitution. And he makes clear to him what he's going to do. He's about to tell him, and he says, Father, I, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father interrupts him. 
And I believe that Jesus wants to make clear that the Father's acceptance of the Son and readiness to restore him leaves the Son's, um, or is not tied to any of the Son's uh, plans of restitution. The only thing that leaves the Son's lips is confession of sin. If we confess our sin, John, First uh, John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Father does not require a probation period where the Son must prove Himself. There is no requirement of the Son to clean up His life first. No act of good graces. The Father's love cannot be merited, but is given freely to those that belong to Him. The restoration is vividly seen by the father's clothing of his son's depraved state by the best robe, which would have been the father's robe that would be given to a guest of honor. He clothes the son's shame with his own robe. And he puts upon him a, a ring of authority, which is what that signified, and, and sandals which only a free man would wear. Not only does the father welcome the son back willingly and joyfully, but he restores to him as if he had never left. So we as Christians, those who belong to God through Christ, we have been, our shame has been covered through the righteousness robes of Christ. We have been accepted as sons and daughters of God as if we had never sinned. This restoration is, is astonishing, not so much to Jesus is here is surrounded by him at his feet, but more so by the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 23 goes further with the father rejoicing and having the fattened calf killed and, and prepared for a feast. And this time, meat was a luxury, and, and the fattened calf would have been the, the held and, and prepared only for the most glorious of occasion. And the whole village at this time would be invited in to take part in this celebration. And here we read of the parables of, of being lost and dead and alive and found. These are terms that uh, apply to one, uh, one state before and after the conversion of Christ. To be lost or apart from Christ is to be dead. And to be found is to be alive in Him. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a perfect verse that encapsulates this whole thing. Now, as beautiful as a display of, of love and redemption this is, Jesus did not tell this to those who identify with the prodigal. Nor is, is the prodigal the the uh, main character of this parable, but it is the eldest son. We read in verse 25, Now his older son in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and, and heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed a fattened calf for him? We will now examine the resentfulness, the resentfulness of the eldest son. Upon hearing of his brother's return and restoration, the eldest brother becomes angry. Not only was he welcomed back, but it was welcomed back joyfully with a celebration. And this is more than, than the eldest brother could take, and he will not take part of it. Much like he did for the youngest son, the father goes out, initiates, and pursues the eldest son and entreats him to come in, to take part of the feast and celebration. The comment here, look, is hostile language. He's essentially saying, look, you. The disrespectful language has now shifted from the younger son to the eldest. And he gives his father a list of why he was deserving of his father's favor and honor. He was always obedient, always obedient, always there following the father's rules. And he did, um, and he did as he should. And therefore, if anyone, he figured, deserved a celebration, it would be him. Surely it would be him. The scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' time were sure of one thing of when the Messiah came, is that he would lay siege to Israel's enemies, the Romans. He would condemn the sinners and he would celebrate and exalt them. Why not? They were the re pious religious ones, the separated ones, which is what Pharisee means. And not only does Jesus come claiming to be the Messiah, not only is he not a militant leader, not only does he minister and accept the lowly, but he doesn't celebrate the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, condemns them. This is the opposite of everything they believed and were taught, and they likewise refused to take part of Jesus and his ministry. The eldest brother here refuses to take part of the father's joy and celebration. His refuse, uh, refusal of the father's favor and invitation to the feast is not due to necessarily his sin or unrighteousness, but in fact it is his righteousness and goodness that is keeping him from his father. It is not remorse or repentance of sinful deeds that keeps the eldest brother out, but pride and reliance in his good deeds that does. The eldest brother's anger reveals the truth to that which I have already stated. He believed that he deserved the father's favor and his obedience to the father was done not out of love, but out of a desire to receive. Both sons are, are guilty of the same self-centeredness desires. They just took two different paths to attain it. Now, I'm not promoting antinomianism here, which basically says you can live however you want. God's grace is there. Don't worry about it. Go on, sin, live all you want. Um, I'm not saying that good works don't matter. Uh, in fact, I'm saying just the opposite. I'm saying that one cannot even have good works until, or, or serve God properly until they understand that salvation is a free gift. It is not the works that the eldest son does that are wrong, but his motive behind them. You see, the younger son had every intention of becoming like the eldest son. 
He had every intention of telling the father that I will work hard. I will be obedient. I will be like him. I, I, will, I will make restitution and I will earn your favor, father. I will earn it back. But his motive would have been no better than the eldest son's. By the father restoring him freely motivates him to serve the father not out of, out of fear, not out of obligation, and not out of a self-centeredness to gain, but out of pure motive of love and adoration of the Father. The quote I have for us this Sunday is from John Calvin, which he says, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy, end quote. The Pharisees, like the eldest brother, believed they could merit God's favor by their good deeds and works, through their religious uh, piety. And also, like the eldest brother, salvation was not a merciful gift to be given through grace, but that which was owed to them for their righteous deeds. These Pharisees put their trust in their works and by doing so cut themselves off from their only hope of salvation, which is Christ. In his book, The, the Prodigal God, Timothy Keller states um, uh, concerning this part of the text, you can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral, moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and owes you a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior, end quote. This was the sin of the eldest brother. This was the sin of the scribes and Pharisees. Why do we need a Savior? That's why they couldn't, and why even the disciples had a hard time with Jesus explaining why he had to go to the cross. I, we don't understand why you have to go to the cross and die. Because of you and your sin must be paid for. What do you mean? We're the chosen people of Israel. We're God's people. And especially the scribes and Pharisees, we, we keep the law. We don't need atonement. We're good people. My mind quickly goes to the Lord, Lord Christians uh, that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. They, they quickly spout out all these things that they have done for Jesus, never mentioning once the one thing that he has done for them the only thing that could really save them. They too thought that they would have the Lord's favor because all that they have accomplished in His name. If one asked why you believe that you are saved and you point to anything other than the cross and your complete dependence and faith in that alone, you may want to pay even closer attention to this parable. If your religion has you looking to yourself for salvation and redemption, and you believe that you have favor of God because of what you have done, and because of your piety and religious works, then you better abandon it fast, lest it be you that hear the words, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And now, we may not be guilty uh, of trying to earn our salvation uh, through works and, and surely recognize it as through grace by faith. But think to yourself the things that make you upset, the things that 
I'm not talking about the trivial things, the things that really frustrate you and, and make you mad and, and upset you. Maybe it's the death or, or pain of, of, your, of a loved one, your financial situations, health problems, marital issues, political drama. These things happen in our lives, and when they do, they make us angry. And do they not make us angry because we believe we deserve better? Like the eldest son, we, we may not outright say it, but our anger reveals that we believe that we deserve better than what has been given to us. And there are whole churches that, the whole ministries are, are, are built upon this. That God wants to, to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Our men's uh, study on Monday, where, where we're talking about this very thing, uh, when trials, tragedy, persecution, or, or any of the sort comes our way, we, we throw up our arms in, in, in frustration and we ask, why, why does God allow such things to happen? I deserve better than this, God. But the fact is that we are not promised health, wealth, prosperity, or ease in this life. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. Troubles, John 16, 33. We're promised hatred, John 15, 19. We're promised fiery trials and suffering, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. We're promised division amongst others, Matthew 10, 34 through 36. These are things that are promised. These are things that we should expect. The eldest brother is angry that the father has never rewarded him for his good deeds. That this favor he has is given to someone such as this sinful brother of his He is, he is mad that his father has never once thrown him a celebration. Not even given him a, not even a fattened cat, but even a goat. And this again shows the, the eldest brother's motive here. And, and the uh, eldest brother uh, disassociates himself with his brother. He says, but you do this for, for this son of yours? It's kind of like when a parent comes home and, and the, the spouse says, you know what your son did today? You know, kind of disowning him and putting him on him. You know, the brother does the same with the father. He says, this son of yours you do this with? But let us think for a moment. Had the father rejected the youngest son, the prodigal son, if he said, no, no, and I'm not welcoming you back. In fact, I reject you. And you know what? I'm going to kill the fattened calf for my obedient son. And we're going to throw a huge celebration for him because he's been obedient to me. Think about that for a moment. In the midst of that celebration, in the midst of that party, what would be the mindset of the eldest son? Who would be exalted in that scenario? Would not the eldest son look around and say, yes, I deserve this? Look at me. This is all for me because of what I have done. Who is exalted in that celebration? Now take the celebration that did happen. The celebration that the father throws for this sinful prodigal son of his. In which the village would have been well aware of him. Think about the prodigal son the sinful misfit son in that scenario, 
dressed in his father's robe, looking around and seeing this mercy, whereas just a day before he was wallowing with pigs, longing to eat what they ate. Do you think that son was looking around thinking to himself, I am pretty great. I am deserving of this. No. Would he not, and would you and I not just be sitting there in awe that not only has our, our Father forgiven us, not only has he, has he restored us, but he is throwing a celebration? How great is this Father of mine? How great is his love for me? How great is his mercy for me? Though the celebration was in honor of the Son's return, what is put on display in the mind of the Son and those there is the mercy and love of the Father. There's little things that we can glean from Scripture about what heaven will be like. But I can tell you one thing. When it comes to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all who are in heaven, I can promise you this, not one will look around thinking that he deserves to be there, that this was because of him. We will be in awe of the grace and mercy of our God and Father through Christ. Uh, verse 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. Was lost. He was lost and is found. Here we have the response, the response of the Father. The father reminds them that his inheritance is still available to him. He has not been robbed of anything. The father in Jesus' parable associates the eldest son. He throws it back to the eldest son. Just as the eldest son said, this son of yours, the father says, this brother of yours. The religious leaders being addressed here by Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees were supposed to be the shepherds leading people to God. Leading people to salvation. And when that salvation comes, and upon, and upon hearing that, that such sinners like this could be saved, they should have rejoiced greatly at this good news. But instead, the elder brothers and Pharisees become indignant of this good news. The father is essentially saying to him, as your brother, you should have been next in line to embrace him. You have should have been right there celebrating his return and joyful. But instead, you're indignant that you are not getting the glory. Just as the scribes and Pharisees should have celebrated the redemption of sinners, should have celebrated and rejoiced over redemption and salvation come. They groan indignant because it, they are not put on display and exalted and celebrated. And this uh, is the purpose of the parable. And may this be a lesson not only to pastors, elders, or lay leaders, but to all those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. There should be no greater privilege, no greatest desire in our hearts here in this life 
to, to see those redeemed by Christ as we have been redeemed by Christ. And there should be nothing that breaks our heart more than seeing those who are wayward and separated from his love. And, and there is quite a, a, uh, quite a work to be done when we go out into this world. Our heart should be for all to know God, all to be reconciled unto him. Our hearts should long for that. Jesus leaves this parable somewhat inconclusive. We don't know what the brother's response is. And that's because he directs it to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus, likewise, shows mercy to them. His plea with them is the same as the father is with his eldest son. Turn and repent of your pride that you too might join in the celebration, that you too might be saved. In closing, this parable gives to us uh, two types of people. There are those that are estranged from God through rebellious lives of, of lawlessness. And there are those uh, who are estranged from God by their religious piety, trying to earn their way. Both of these routes lead to the same ruin, and that's why I entitled this sermon, The Prodigal Sons. Maybe you're the prodigal and your life has been full of, of self-centeredness and sin and, and outright rebellion against God. And you think that you need to clean your life up first in order to get into God's good grace. Or that your sin is, is too great. Or maybe you are a Christian. You're a legitimate, saved uh, Christian under the blood of Christ. But yet, when you sin, you sometimes struggle like I do. And thinking of, of the father just constantly shaking his head in disapproval. Jesus' message to, to you, to the, to the rebellious sinner and, and to the prodigal is the same today as it was to them back then. Come. Turn your, from your former ways. Confess your sin and come. Come to the throne of grace where the Father's arms are open wide. For where sin increase, grace has abounded all the more. Romans 5.20 And maybe you identify with the eldest son, with the Pharisees and scribes. You, you are constantly striving to earn God's favor, constantly striving to, to earn that redemption, earn that salvation striving to earn His love, His grace, His mercy, hoping that you have done enough, hoping that you are good enough. Well, let me save you the trouble of wondering, you are not. Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There will never be enough deeds done Works done, religious piety deep enough for you to merit God's favor and acceptance. That would defeat the whole purpose of the cross and cheapen Christ's sacrifice, sacrifice upon it. Jesus' message is the same to you. Come. 
Come to where striving cease. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. This parable lays out the gospel message beautifully. That God, through Christ, came to seek and redeem that which is lost. You, me. That by his perfect life live and atoning sacrifice, his grace, his mercy, we might be saved. This good news of the free gifts of salvation, uh, salvation is simple, but yet somewhat perplexing. In that you cannot be bad enough to earn your way out of it. And on the other hand, you cannot be good enough to earn your way into it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I will end with the uh, words of, of Martin Luther while on his deathbed. His last words, we are all but beggars. This is true.